Hello, hello, and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. This program is produced at the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation in association with the UTS Business School and broadcast all the way across the country on the Community Radio Network. This week, we bring you breaking news. Today, the 24th of November 2020, marks the release of the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative's new roadmap to reshape the country's financial system in the wake of droughts, bushfires and a global pandemic. Comprising of 80 organisations across major banks, insurers, super funds, civil society, academics and other stakeholders, the Australian Sustainable Finance Initiative has handed down 37 recommendations that will enable the sector, together with regulators and government, to strengthen Australia's financial system with the aim of recovering from the impacts of COVID-19 and delivering a transition to a net zero, resource efficient and inclusive economy. Joining me today to discuss the roadmap are three contributing academics from the University of Technology, Sydney. Dr Scott Kelly is the Research Director at the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. Professor Robin Quiggan is the Associate Dean of Indigenous Leadership and Engagement at the Dean's Unit at the University of Technology, Sydney. And Dr Deborah Cotton is a Senior Lecturer in the Finance Discipline Group at the UTS Business School. Thank you all for joining us. This roadmap symbolises a pretty significant outlook for how financial services will not only operate in Australia, but globally as well. These 37 recommendations or ways that we can meet a lot of these 21st century sustainability challenges and also better perform within international markets as well. It's a very comprehensive plan. How long has there been a concerted effort to future-proof Australia's financial system? It's Robin here. I might start off on that, um, answering that question. So this initiative came out of a summit that was called two years ago, a Sustainable Finance Summit. And one of the outcomes of that summit, bringing finance industry people from all around the country together and New Zealand, actually, and focusing on our United Nations goal to have sustainable finance roadmaps for all countries around the world. So at that summit, everybody agreed that Australia should get started on on, um, drafting our own. And the the work kicked off from that summit two years ago. And a collaborative effort of over 80 organisations in the Australian financial sector, each obviously with very varying means of making their respective money and respective profits. Does the industry see the COVID recession as potentially a clean slate on which to build a sustainable sector almost from the ground up again. Step here. Um, I think that's probably, I think it gives us a bit of a new way of viewing things. And certainly from the launch of the report this morning, Jackie and Simon were both suggesting that it gave us and all financial organisations as well, a bit of a new way of having to think about uh, how they lend money, how they look at uh, financial services and financial products. And I think quite a bit of that, I would suggest, goes along the lines of what we're hoping to achieve from this report. Um, Whether it uh, kind of makes a big difference or not, I'm not 100% sure, but it certainly is making people sit back and look at things a little bit afresh. Yeah, I, I just jump in there as well. I think it needs to be added that this whole process began before COVID was even you know, on the horizon or talked about. And so I think the world was already transitioning in this direction. Australia was starting to take leadership in this. And as the effects of COVID started unfolding over time, I think the importance and 
uh, of this type of initiative um, for managing the risks that are posed by pandemics and other global crises like climate change and biodiversity loss really um, set to put the focus back into the importance of this type of work. And I think, um, you know, set the focus for the trajectory going forward and really inform the recommendations that were made. We'll get slightly political for a moment. I hope no one minds. But a big takeaway from this roadmap is obviously the support of net zero emissions by 2050, which shouldn't come as a shock. Over 70 countries have already committed to such a goal. Now, the federal government have been building their own policies and their own respective roadmaps uh, to hopefully hit the 2050 targets without necessarily having to mandate it uh, due to a lot of the internal debates within the party over climate policy. Is it sometimes better for the private sector to take the lead on commitments to sustainability, given that, particularly with the big four banks, the writing has been on the wall for a while on investing in non-renewables? I think there's been quite a bit of... uh initiative from the banks, even though we don't necessarily see a lot of it, but certainly there's been a lot of initiative from the banks on how they lend products, uh, funds to, you know, various renewable uh, sources of energy and, as uh, Scott mentioned, biodiversity loss and a whole lot of other areas around the environmental. The interesting thing too, which you alluded to a bit, I think, is that this is a, a project that's actually being led by the financial institutions, whereas a lot of the ones that you see around the world, such as Canada, is government-led. So we've got a bit of a different take, I think, on it and a bit of a different uh, focus than possibly has occurred elsewhere. I think that's right. And the other uh, driver for industry is from the insurance sector where the difficulties of maintaining effective insurance models in the face of the kinds of bushfires we've seen in the kinds and, and in the face of the kinds of um, environmental events that are predicted in relation to climate change and biodiversity loss and all the things that flow from that pose serious issues for the insurance industry. So they have become a really serious driver of change in the in the um, financial services sector, as well as looking at superannuation funds who also have you know serious choices to make about the ways that they invest members' funds. And they are about future-proofing um, our retirements. And there's strong drivers for them to look at the environmental, social and governance issues when they are so future-focused for their members. So not only the finances, but also what kind of world will we be living in? I think it's also important to note that Australia is part of a globally connected uh, system. And if we look just recently what's happened around the world, we've had uh, net zero announcements being made by most of our global trading partners. Uh, Most of the, uh, or many of the financial sector um, players that are in Australia are multinational. They operate in global markets. And so if this is the direction the world is heading, it's very important that Australia uh, participates in that and, and, and also uh, leads the way uh, in that direction as well. And if I might just interject for a brief moment, how important is it for a country's global reputation? Environmental sustainability obviously has this huge effect on the financial services sector. Do you think that it's important that the Australian government get behind a lot of these initiatives to give them more credibility on the international stage? 
Uh, I would say definitely, yes. Um, it is really important. Last year, I was at a conference, a UNPRI conference, and as soon as I said I came from Australia, everyone was going, oh, wow, well, what are you doing? doesn't look like you're doing very much in Australia at the moment. So apart from that being a little bit embarrassing at the time, I think it's obvious to the world everybody's looking at what everyone else is doing because it requires global action, as you've been suggesting. So I think uh, our reputation is not fabulous in that area at this stage and a little bit of government progress and leadership would be fantastic. Mm. What, what government's really are good at, I think, is providing certainty. And at the moment, there's been a real lack of certainty in the market, particularly at the federal level. And when that certainty is provided, then um, institutions can start investing. And now I think what we're seeing now is institutions are starting to take leadership and they're investing anyway, because we have, you know, net zero targets across most of the states or all of the states in Australia now. And they're, they're taking that leadership and, and implementing the strategies anyway. I think uh, the government is, is eventually going to follow suit uh, because that's the direction that the world is heading in. Can I just say too, I think we are, our, the constituents, the, the voters out here, the ordinary people out here want to see a world that has some sort of environmental safety in the face of um, the changes that we know um, are coming. And we've just seen a very disrupted world. And I think, again, people are in favour of uh, um, policies that provide some, some as, as many guarantees for uh, environmental stability as we can find. So I think you know, you know, the general population in I, I think, and also industry are moving this way, and you know, government faces a real risk of being left behind. Mm. And I think it's interesting you raised that the Responsible Investment Association Australasia found that eighty six percent of Australians expect their super or other investments and 87% of Australians expect the money in their bank accounts to be invested responsibly and ethically. So as you were just saying, Deborah, it's clear that consumer sentiment has already made that shift towards sustainability. Do you think that that is even more important than any legislative change could be? I think as Robin suggests, that is probably likely to be a big driver because you see in the elections at various points, um, so Zali Stegel is a good uh, state example, where her stance on climate change was a very important one in terms of her election into her uh, area. So I think there is a big focus on that. And also I've done research, a few surveys of public, the general public around climate change. And over 75% of people believe it's a real issue and needs to be dealt with. So it's definitely consumer-led and, as is suggested, business-led. I think we need to think taking Deb's, the evidence Deb's citing on board to think about the way in which industry does respond to, to its consumers and um, wanting to stay relevant to its consumers, particularly in this post-Royal Commission environment where trust is an issue and institutions are looking to regain the trust of their customers. So I think, you know, there is an, an interest among financial services institutions in their consumers' views and also their shareholders' views. And um, I think we see more and more shareholder activism, um, certainly driven by wanting good returns, but also wanting good corporate citizenship. I think this roadmap really represents some un unique opportunities for the financial sector and 
you know, if, if the financial sector takes this roadmap and starts implementing these recommendations, I think it, it, it will start putting Australia on a trajectory towards uh, a sustainable future. But in the same respect, uh, if they if institutions don't implement some of these recommendations, there are real risks here. And we're already seeing uh, things like litigation risks and legal risks filter through the court systems where companies that haven't um, probably accounted for climate change in their portfolios or given options to their members are facing those litigation actions. So I think this is becoming a real risk and it's an opportunity for business. And what were some of the lessons that have been carried on from the Royal Commission into this roadmap? Obviously, Trust would be the largest factor, of course, but not just trust in how an institution handles a consumer's money, but also how institutions regulate their own employees. Do you think that that's a very important thing to remember going forward, that there was a breach of trust and that it will obviously take time for that trust to form again? I think so. And part of that is around the problems that we've had in terms of the number of people in our society who are excluded from the financial system in so many ways or in fact in many cases effectively exploited by it and that came out of course in the Royal Commission and so this level of responsibility is being pushed back to these financial institutions and as was from the Royal Commission but this report does it very specifically it talks about very clearly about ensuring that this exclusion this exploitation is no longer a part of their financial system and that they need to be focusing on those issues quite specifically. I think that also the extent to which there was collaboration amongst senior leaders across the institution uh, and the wide group of people, including us as academics, that were all invited to participate in this process to work very hard and to very tight deadlines on it. And I think the success of the collaboration testament to the fact that there is enormous goodwill in the sector to lift to lift our game and we do need that to be uh, met by government and I'm thinking about the issues that Deb's just raised about being mindful of consumer vulnerability and I and I raise that because I look at the moment at the proposition to remove responsible lending provisions which you know I think Anna Bly was really clear the the banks haven't asked for that it's government that's introducing that proposition and it does put uh, individual uh, consumers who are borrowing at risk of borrowing beyond their means if those kinds of uh, provisions are removed and yes, we can all say we need to be take responsibility for our, for ourselves, and we do. However, not everybody is as literate in in their lending uh, options and the kinds of requirements that are involved in in paying off a, a mortgage or short term unsecured credit. And people have different and very urgent needs at times that drive and can override good, sound decision-making, people who are looking to feed children, to pay rent, to meet very urgent needs. So I think um, we really need government to, to meet industry and the people who have contributed to this work with the kind of respect for consumers that we all expect and that the Royal Commission really highlighted was needed. Inclusivity is a really strong theme in the roadmap itself and you cite the fact that wealth inequality has grown over the last 15 years with people in the highest 20% experiencing average growth in wealth of 68% 
while net growth for the lowest 20% grew by just six. Now, obviously, in the last 15 years, we've also been introduced to the term gig economy. And as you mentioned yourself, the increasing dominance of casual work is not in the interests of financial system participants, nor the institutions themselves, really. So as you've already said, there are a lot of a lot of barriers to entry for people into borrowing, or for many people, it's an intimidating world. How do financial institutions grapple with how not to exclude someone on the basis of an insufficient income, creditworthiness, or as you've already mentioned, Robin, an inability to understand the products and services? I think there are quite a few banks that are, and financial institutions that are that value the kind of and are engaged in financial literacy themselves and also have thought about developing uh, low interest credit cards and low interest credit products. But we actually, you know, do need to see those things raised up as and and probably more publicised and more support for people. I also think, you know, again, uh, there is a role for government to increase no interest loan lending and meeting the needs uh, in a way that's manageable for people with many demands on their often low income. Really, it's about partly about education as well. And I don't just mean education for the people who are borrowing the money. I also mean education for the people who are involved in the financial services sector in order to ensure that they are actually explaining what these loans are about, what the payments are about, what the consequences are of not making the payments, how they might actually be able to speak to the bank to arrange for a pause in the lending or, you know, a number of different things that are actually possible. But a lot of the people um, that we're talking about here really don't have that knowledge. So it's not only about educating those people, It's also educating the financial uh, services industry to actually manage and explain the products and et cetera to the clients as well. And I think removing some of the perverse incentives that that were drawn out in in the Royal Commission and the the kinds of, um, the kinds of industry incentives that push, might be pushing staff to ask fewer questions and to, you know, meet key performance indicators that may not be in the customer's interest as well. Does the whole understanding of KPIs in many ways have to change to allow the industry to organically remedy a lot of these problems? There is a bit in the um, report about looking at links with incentives so that it does form part of this report to actually ensure that the financial institutions, the financial services sector overall, take some leadership in this. And and there's a big component of the broader recommendations, which is about leadership and accountability from the top, et cetera. So I think that idea is certainly embedded into this report quite uh, succinctly, I believe. Issues around disclosure as well, although we we know also from research that people need more than, you know, a a PDS to really get around what it is that they're uh, agreeing or not to. So effort to educate staff so that they can have good conversations with people about what the product means. And one particularly interesting recommendation is a standardised environmental stress test for businesses in Australia, I believe it's recommendation 16. This test would include information about what organisations are expected to report against and access to data and tools for stress testing. It's particularly interesting in the same way that 
we see mass testing occurring in health and how it can identify previously unknown cases or clusters, what could a standardised test do for Australian businesses' sustainability models? Shall I jump in there? Because I was um, one of the authors of that recommendation. Yeah, look, stress tests are a very powerful technique and, you know, they're not forecasts. They allow management to understand what the risks and exposures are to a business under a different under different scenarios. So in this situation, we're talking specifically about uh, climate change risks, and that's both from a physical risk perspective, uh, but also from a transition risk perspective, because as we transition to a low carbon economy, there are risks that companies, financial institutions that are invested in high fossil fuel assets like coal uh, will have stranded assets on their balance sheet and face, you know, financial problems. So it's it's enabling a business to understand its portfolio and its risks across different future scenarios, whether that be a high climate change physical risk scenario or a low uh, transition risk scenario. We also make the recommendation that this shouldn't be just limited to climate change scenarios, but also to the effects of other environmental effects, so such as biodiversity loss or other stress factors such as water stress, which is important for Australia. And by standardised, what exactly does that mean? Because I can imagine that each financial institution would have an entirely independent set of risks. How long did it take to put together a a test that could find value in every financial institution? Yeah, this is a really good point. And we've just completed um, some work for the Department of Agriculture, Water and Environment on this uh, specific point, looking at how we define um, stress tests across different sectors of the economy. And because the needs of uh, a bank are very different to a miner, uh, which are different to a retail outlet. And so, um, yes, uh, you can have the broad level climate um, scenarios consistent, but then how an organisation applies those scenarios to the business are going to be very unique and different. And so I think a lot of that detail still needs to be worked out. Um, One good example that's already in play now is the way that um, the regulators, such as APRA and the Bank of England, uh, Bank of England are actually leading the way in this regard in applying climate stress tests across the insurance and banking sector to ensure that the whole sector is resilient to future climate change. And they're using this information to guide future decision making. So I think um, there's there's still a lot of work to be done in standardising and developing these scenarios, but it's a very exciting space to be in at the moment. Is it possible that we're in a position to be a world leader very, very quickly in the field of sustainable finance and investment? Personally, I think we should be quite agile. We don't have a large range of financial institutions. In fact, the majority of our financial institutions, there's just four of them, plus Macquarie Bank, if you're incorporating them in this group as well. And then we've got a whole lot of, you know, Bendigo Bank and those smaller banks. I think we should be able to be quite agile because we're relatively small. So I would hope that that would be the case. And also, because this whole project was, as um, you suggested right at the beginning, led by the sector, led by the financial sector, and when you have a look at the participants, they come from an enormous range of very serious and large financial institutions. And therefore, we do have an ability to be agile in here, and people are wanting to actually achieve that end. And we see that with our superannuation funds. So, for example, Hester is quite a good example in there where they're trying to look at more sustainable investment practices and that's where the majority of our funds are in our superannuation. So I think we do have the ability to be agile and get moving and perhaps being a leader, might we might have missed that boat but certainly um, be doing some things that are a little bit interesting. 
which is where this idea of the similar to the hex thing comes in line with what you were talking about because if we're thinking outside the square this is fantastic isn't it in addition to being agile and thinking outside the square on the other end of the scale is risk assessment and i think people financial institutions are looking really hard at the kinds of risks they face if they don't pay attention to climate change to social change to to the issues around trust and and responsible responsible um, conduct so i think you know on that other scale there is there are risk issues that uh, that financial institutions and their boards and their staff are looking very clearly at well that's all she wrote for this week thank you again for tuning in and a big thank you to our guests dr scott kelly professor robin quiggan and dr deborah cotton make sure to catch every episode online wherever you get your podcasts and of course make sure to catch us at the same time next week i've been your host max tillman thanks for listening